This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breaks Over Back to Work, episode (laughs) 2.28, Fatherless. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I missed you. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and struggling to suspend my disbelief every time characters take quattro at his word. Did none of them watch First Gundam? Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 269 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Diamond and Irimar. Patrons, depending on level, get a shout out on the podcast, entry in all of our seasonal giveaways, recognition on our website, access to a patron discord, bonus content, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and physical Mobile Suit Breakdown merch like art prints, pins, and t-shirts. Find out more at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. We also have special thanks to Marcus for the Christmas gift and card he sent us all the way from Japan. Thank you, Marcus. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 27, Rendezvous with Char. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers Yazan's Gauntlet and Part 1 of what will be our ongoing coverage of designer Nagano Mamoru. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last episode. This is it, the main event on Spacenoid Ninja Warrior Legends of the Hidden Guazian Edition, the game show where Spacenoid children race to overcome obstacles and puzzles for your amusement. We're your hosts. I'm Lieutenant Tom Thompson. And I'm Lieutenant Nina Nina's daughter. And we are live from this season's special course, a haunted Guazian battleship floating through space that we have rigged with devilish devices and tricky traps. The course may be different, but the rules are the same. Each Spacenoid competitor is trapped inside the most difficult obstacle course we could devise. As soon as the buzzer sounds, they'll need to race against the clock and avoid triggering deadly traps in order to make it out alive. Win, and they'll earn a coveted three-day pass to visit Mother Earth. Lose, and they'll be trapped there until the oxygen runs out. Let's catch up with our current competitor, Katz Kobayashi. It says here Katz is an intern at the Kennedy Space Center Museum, who says he is running the course today to inspire his little brother and sister. How's he been doing, Lieutenant Nina? Well, Lieutenant Tom, Katz had some trouble getting through the Hizak hijack obstacle right outside the Guazine, and he really struggled with the drifting normal suits. But he was able to get through the cargo netting without too much difficulty. And like all the competitors this season, he just flew up the salmon ladder and the warped wall. Wow, (laughs) those Earth obstacles really aren't much of a challenge in Zero-G, are they? No, they are not. 
But Katz's momentum came to a screeching halt on the brutal bridge where he was supposed to assemble the Silver Zaku Idol, but instead triggered the battleship bombardment trap and was nearly killed by one of our Guazin guardians. Fortunately, he had found the Amulet of Amuro in a previous round and was able to use it to call in a friend to help him get through those obstacles. What a dramatic run. I bet that Katz's experience as a museum intern really helps him navigate this derelict ship. You said it, Tom, and Katz is barely halfway through. That's right. Katz is now coming up on the harrowing hangar, where he'll have to space parkour his way up the side of a wrecked mobile suit in the Gelgoog Gamble, and figure out how to solve the riddle of cockpit lockout. And he'll have to do all that while avoiding being crushed or incinerated by one of the two mobile suits that are already dueling in the harrowing hangar. If he makes it into the cockpit, he'll be facing hot wire. Connect the right two wires and he'll fire off a single round from the bazooka in order to open up the passage into the next chamber. But connect the wrong wires and he'll waste the last traces of electricity and be trapped forever inside that floating coffin. If he escapes, Katz will move back into space for the final round of challenges. Katz is almost to the cockpit, but let's take a moment to meet the duelists who volunteered to make the hangar truly harrowing this season. A veteran pilot who is always first to the fight. He hates the Zeta Gundam, but he loves women and children. Oh, I'm sorry, that was a typo. He hates the Zeta Gundam, love, women, and children. It's Yazan Gable in a Gaplant. Say hi, Yazan. Murata! That's great, Yazan. His opponent is an ordinary college first year at Mizusa University with an uncanny knack for getting into trouble. It's 18-year-old firebrand Shri Climb. Say hi, Shri. Murata! This is going to be a long season. And now the recap for Rendezvous with Char. The crew of the Argama prepared to meet Quattro's shuttle, but it won't be a simple matter. Their use of laser communication to coordinate the pickup has left them vulnerable to discovery and attack by the Titans. Camille and Fa can't seem to look at each other without arguing, and Apolli recommends they be split up when it comes time to sortie and defend the Argama. Bright continues to fret over his inability to be a father figure for Camille. With its bridge repaired and Gadi promoted to captain, the Alexandria is in pursuit. Jared has command of the mobile suit pilots and is pleasantly surprised when Moar arrives to join them. With his focus on the task at hand, it doesn't occur to him to wonder what Moar is doing there until she tells him. Soroka wanted her with him on the Jupitris, but she wanted to be with Jared. Her confession leads to their first kiss and the somewhat ominous declaration that she won't die in battle because Jared will be there to protect her. On Earth, Hayato sees off Quattro and two small children Quattro seems to have adopted. Hayato cautions Quattro to wait for the right moment to tell everyone about Blex's murder and once more urges him to take Blex's place as leader of Ayug. As the shuttle prepares for takeoff, Quattro muses that leadership in Ayug, Karaba, and Axis is a tremendous burden on one man's shoulders. The moment ships are visible from the Alexandria, even before confirming that they are the Argama and the Radish, Yazan launches with his squadron, eager for a chance at glory and hoping to show up Jared. Emma's squadron launches right after, trying to lead Yazan's mobile suits away from the Argama and the rendezvous point. Leaving Earth's atmosphere, the shuttle pilots feel the danger of their position, 
and want to leave as soon as possible, but Quattro convinces them to wait and then to leave him at the rendezvous point in a small boat. Sarah and Moar enter battle piloting two now hopelessly out-of-date Hyzak, but the mobile suits are not important. It is the weapon they carry that matters. Sarah's Hyzak is bringing a mega launcher into battle, and Moar's will act as power source for the massive weapon. They will have only one chance to fire, and doing so will leave the Hyzaks paralyzed, completely drained of power. As Sarah moves into position, Katz feels a flash of hostility and rushes to take Emma the G-Defensor. Jared and Camille are locked in battle, but Yazan wants to destroy the Zeta Gundam himself. Sarah puts the Zeta in her sights, when suddenly every pilot on the field with even a bit of new type ability cries out. Emma and Katz to warn Camille, Katz and Camille to tell Sarah not to fire. In this mental cacophony, Sarah hesitates, until a yell from Moar snaps her out of it. The Zeta dodges clear of the beam, but Yazan's mobile suit is clipped and loses a leg. Neither the Argama nor the Radish are hit, but the shuttle is completely destroyed. Finally, the Argama is able to retrieve Quattro's boat and flee from the Alexandria. Returning to their own ship, Jared and Moar wonder if they can depend on Sarah. In the Argama's hangar, Camille approaches Fa. She bristles, expecting him to criticize her piloting and flinching when he raises a hand, but he's there to make peace. With the possibility that they could die at any time, he doesn't want to fight her. The way they've been lately is childish, and he knows he's at fault too, but he doesn't want this to be how they are with each other anymore. Surprised and happy, she agrees, and Camille kisses her on the forehead before he leaves. Quattro, settling in with his two small wards, has something special for Bright. A video and a letter from his family. Bright rushes to his quarters and tears stream down his face as he reads the letter from Mirai and watches the recording of his children talking about their life on Earth. So we called this episode Fatherless, but based on about 40% of the episode's runtime, we could have called it Recreation. We start off with Camille and Fa having another fight, and then Camille runs into Apley on the way out, and everyone is very insistent on calling this Recreation. I come back to one of my earlier interpretations that this is kind of a way for them to downplay the seriousness of a relationship between two young people. Yeah. And for Emma and Bright, and even to some degree for Apley, that was an excuse not to have to do anything about it. But when Camille describes it as recreation, it feels very different, doesn't it? For Camille, it's like, stay out of my business. I can figure this out on my own. But he does finally break down and ask Apley, he says, every time I talk to Fa, we fight. Why is that? And Apley gets kind of embarrassed, like scratches his cheek and gets... So close to telling Camille, it's because you like each other, you big dumb idiot. But he chickens out at the last second. Oh, this is just youth stuff. Learn from it. (laughs) Well, but see, I don't think it's just the sort of latent crush happening here. I feel like there's a lot of other factors at play. For instance, a lot of the way Camille treats Fa as a pilot feels like him replicating how he was treated when he was a new pilot. 100%. This episode, this scene especially. Like, Camille shows up, Fa's busy with something else. He's like, why aren't you already at the briefing? You are a failed pilot because you're combing your hair. Exactly what happened between him and Emma back in episode 9. 
Um, yeah, it's very like, well, I had to live through it. And so you should have to also. And nobody else is on your case. So I guess I will be on your case. But also, this is the model he has. This is the only way he knows how to be. But why does he have to step into that vacuum? Why does he feel like it's his responsibility to be the person like riding Fa's Because he cares about Fa and he does not want her to get beat up by Wong Lee. Or equivalent punishment, right? Like with cats, for instance, Camille had this attitude of sort of big brotherliness of like, I'm going to show you the ropes so that you don't suffer the way I suffered. And I think it's the same with Fa. Alternatively, it's that he enjoys having a subordinate and getting to be in a position of power for once. Yeah. Well, or having suffered the way he suffered, he now feels resentful for anybody who gets away with the kind of things that he was punished for. And it can be all of these things. Like to clarify, it can be he can want to protect her, but also want to exercise his own power. He can resent the apparent laxness in how Fa is treated and also like her. Like he can feel all of these things at the same time. Humans are not terribly logical. Also, Camille's arc up until this point has largely been about accepting the responsibilities that are thrust upon him. As the senior pilot, all of his experience with people like Emma tells him that it's his responsibility to look out for and chastise the junior pilots when they are failing. As much as this is about his relationship with Fa, it's also just his duty. And we cannot forget how much he didn't want Fa to be a pilot in the first place, right? So how much of this is, oh, fine, you want to be a pilot? Okay, I'll treat you like a pilot. He didn't even want Fa to be involved in the war. Period, yeah. And part of that was Camille being kind of a misogynist, but a lot of that was Camille really caring about Fa and thinking that all of this war stuff, all of this pilot stuff is really terrible, and he didn't want her to have to experience it. It's sort of like, for him, she represents this like safe, idealized thing, right? The homeland. Right. This time when his life was considerably less complicated. Not perfect by any means. You know, we know he had plenty of troubles before the war started, but it was sort of untouched by the war experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And a little bit of that is him having her on this pedestal, right? Well, Fa was probably the best part of his life before, before the events of the show. And then to have her be part of this new, difficult, upsetting part of his life is really hard for him. She can no longer represent the time before. We saw this with Amuro, too, that he didn't have a homeland that he cared about. He didn't have a place, a furusato, but he had people who could represent home for him, people who could be the thing that he was fighting for. That's less true with Camille, because the connections that Camille feels with the other people in the Argama feel less crucial, maybe less universally positive than the ones Amuro had with the crew of the white base. But if there's anybody on the Argama that that Camille feels that way about, it's Fa. There's also an aspect of role reversal in their relationship now, because at a couple of times Camille has said that in the time before the show started, Fa acted for him like a surrogate mother. She was always, you know, chiding him, don't bite your nails. She was taking care of him in a way that his own mother never did. But now it's Camille who is chiding Fa. It's Camille who is looking after Fa in the role of the elder superior person, the older brother, or perhaps kind of like a father. And to spend some time on the other side of this relationship, 
Fa doesn't want him to be her boss. <laughs> Fa doesn't want him to be her superior. Fa doesn't want to be scolded. She wants her friend plus some romance, right? Uh, she resents him taking on these roles for himself. And she's not interested in that kind of a relationship between them if it doesn't also have the romantic component. That's my interpretation anyway, mm -hmm. that her reaction is very like, I don't want you looking after me because you're my boss. I want you looking after me because you love me. And she wasn't there when he was experiencing the worst parts of his time on the Argama. For Fa, Camille was this impulsive immature kid who ran away to join the rebellion and then the next time she sees him he's this like hard-bitten veteran soldier who has killed dozens of people there's a brief reunion before he goes down to earth but they don't really see each other for very long at that point point. and by the time he comes back from earth camille is a completely changed person the last scene between the two of them just like hurt me in my heart uh especially the beginning of it because Camille goes to where Fa is getting out of the Methus and she she immediately instinctively is like, oh, he's here to tell me off. OK, I know I did the wrong thing. All right. I know. I know I was wrong before. And when he lifts his hand, she flinches. Yeah. She fully expects her best friend to smack her in the face because he's playing it being her, well, playing it. I don't want to be dismissive, but because he's acting like her superior. And he would be allowed. I feel like it would be frowned upon. I don't think any, I don't think the other like officers of the Argama would think that that was good, but he could maybe do it. And if it weren't Camille, if it were Emma that Fa was talking to in this way, it wouldn't be surprising. But um, I honestly don't believe Camille was going to hit her. I thought about it a bit. Like, was it that he was going to and then changed his mind? But I think he's raising his hand as like, whoa, 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 like... Let's not fight about like my hands are up. Let's let's calm down for a minute and talk. Not as a like I am winding up to hit you. It's ambiguous, though, because the camera holds on that one shot of him with his hand raised and her flinching away for an unnatural amount of time. Yes. They really want us to notice. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he wasn't going to hit her. And I do think it is intended to just emphasize her fear mm -hmm. in that moment. But a reasonable person could watch that and think that Camille had started to and then stopped himself. Yeah, perhaps seeing her reaction was like, but I, I don't think. And Camille has never done that. The only time Camille has ever corrected somebody was that time he punched Quattro. That's true. We've never even seen him hit cats. Well, and he's and he's been in brawls, right? We've seen him. Yeah, but I'm talking about correcting somebody. Right. And then we have this moment where he feels weirdly mature in that he's like very openly accepting. He's like, I'm sure a big part of this situation between us is my fault. <laughs> um, although he's very lacking in specificity. And then mentions like, we could die any fight and I don't want... I don't want our last interactions to have been us arguing. Mm -hmm. I don't want that. And he kisses her on the forehead. I think like, so. Which is sort of ambiguous too, right? Like that could be purely friendly or it could be romantic. And while it does seem sort of mature early on, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, this is also just avoidance though. Mm. You have not actually dealt with any of the reasons you two fight you've just said let's not anymore <laughs> yeah nothing has been addressed nothing has been changed or fixed or dealt with yet it is still significant for him to say this is a dumb thing and we should stop doing it like yeah it's because, progress because everybody else in the show every other character is like oh that's just teen stuff it's fine no need to worry about that no need to even address it 
But here Camille's like, no, I actually don't want this. I want a different kind of relationship with you. Let's try to bridge this gap. The thing I thought, though, was most interesting about this is Camille has this huge smile on his face at the end of this interaction. It's a very unnatural smile. It doesn't look like Camille's normal expression. And then he walks away from her. The smile immediately disappears. And when he walks past Appley, he's like grimacing and too in his own head to even respond when Appley like bumps into him and says, hey. Well, and Appley is, says to himself, well, what's wrong with him? Right. So this whole interaction with Fa is Camille putting on this mask of like happiness and friendliness that is not authentic. But that, oh, I hadn't noticed that. And now the whole scene feels super gross to me. Thank you. Why does it feel gross? Because if he doesn't genuinely want to make amends with her, why play at it? If he doesn't genuinely care about her, why talk all this? Like, why why go to such effort to pretend? It, it feels like leading her on. No, I don't think it's that he's leading her on. And I don't think that it's that he doesn't genuinely want to be friends with her and to want to bridge this gap. And I think the whole interaction with Faz is genuine, except that Camille is like, Camille is hiding his like own internal feelings of dismay and dread or yeah the whole cocktail of negative feelings that Camille is experiencing because he can't unload those on Fa Mm -hmm. he has to keep all of that inside in order to try to reconcile with Fa you know what it is it's his anger that he's swallowing it's the anger and the rage at this whole awful situation I suppose I buy that I feel deeply conflicted because on the one hand, I think he needs to be able to be honest with someone, but it's also, I can acknowledge that that person is probably not Fa. No. Because too many of his feelings about his situation are tied up in like her choice to become a pilot too. And when he has started to get close to talking about that, she clearly feels very uh, judged and takes a lot of that very personally. And so he can't really talk about his feelings about his situation with her. Like he needs somebody else. (laughs) Especially because I think he still blames himself for her getting involved. So it's one of those situations where despite the fact that I wish he could be honest with her, uh, a lot of those feelings are probably too close to home, too uh, complex and, and personal for her to be able to listen to him and let him vent in a way that doesn't become about her feelings and how she thinks he perceives her. And think back to the beginning of the episode after their first fight, when he's talking to Apolli, Camille says, like, I wish we could have one conversation that didn't end in a fight. And for him, the way to make that happen is that he has to swallow some of his feelings. And isn't that just learning to be a grown up all over? Mm. Sadly, I think Apolli might actually be the best person for Camille to talk to, but he won't. Yeah, I could see Apolli being a pretty great person to talk to about all that. But yeah, Camille won't reach out on his own and Apolli won't really reach out to to check, you know? Apolli won't pry. Camille would need to make the first move there and he's not going to. Speaking of grown-ups, so there's a line we've heard before and it comes up many times in this episode and uh, I think we need to address it from a couple different angles. But Bright says, I just don't think I can be a good father figure for Camille. But let's begin by asking, why does Bright think he needs to? Why does Bright think he needs to be a surrogate father to Camille? From a purely historical standpoint, if you go back to the Imperial Japanese Army, the ethics of the commander-subordinate relationship were based on Neo-Confucian ideology. 
And yeah, the officer was expected to be a father to his men. Right. Within Confucianism, you can basically look at all relationships as parent-child relationships. A teacher is like a parent to a student. The emperor is a parent to the country. You know, a citizen is a child to the state. And so, like, the fealty that you owe the state is the same fealty and duty you owe to a parent. And that basically all relationships fall into this pattern. So there's that. I think there is... There is probably also some awareness of the fact that Camille is an orphan now, even though Bright wasn't there when that happened. There's also, to some degree, Bright having to deal with a lot of dredged up memories of the White Base and his role on the White Base. Yeah, for Bright personally, he has a lot of experience with child soldiers. Camille is a little bit older than Amaro was, but... Bright is now a lot older than he was when they were on the white base. And Bright probably feels like all of these kids need a father figure. It's interesting that he identifies Camille as being particularly in need of a father figure, but not Fa or Katz. Well, Katz has a father. There are probably the dual reasons of Fa being a young woman, and therefore it's not his place to look after her. It's female officer's place to look after her. Kind of like a sexist, like, she doesn't need a dad, she needs a mom. That's very interesting. Because that's something we don't have a historical parallel for, because there weren't women and women officers in the Imperial Japanese Army. I wonder, had there been, if that would have been the thinking? I mostly come to that conclusion because this keeps coming up in the context of Camille having difficulty with his relationships and how he relates to other people, I don't necessarily have specific lines I can point to for this. Sorry, it's like a vibe <laughs> that I get from the show. But there's a sense of like, Bright thinks Camille needs to be taught how to be a man, like an adult, but it, we mean an adult man, not an adult in a gender neutral kind of way. And that's not what Fa needs. If Fa needs guidance, she needs guidance about becoming an adult woman, mm. which is not a thing that Bright can give. Or that anyone would ever expect Bright to be able to give. I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that the writers had some pretty definitive ideas about being a man and being a woman and that those two things are quite different. And so it doesn't feel like that big a leap to say that, like, of course, Bright doesn't feel like he's the one to guide Fa. <laughs> I think it would be different if Fa were younger. Like young children are more genderless. And so while different parental figures provide different things, they like need mother and father figures together more within the logic of the show. It's interesting you mentioned that because think about the end of the episode when Bright is watching the little video message from his kids. Mm -hmm. In that video message specifically, Chaemin, Bright's daughter, talks a lot about herself and her mother and her interactions with her mother. Hathaway, Bright's son, is the one who talks about his dad. Oh, mom's told us you're out in space on a big ship and you're fighting with Gundams. I'll come back to that, but I had one more thought about why nobody feels like they have to parent Fa. Fa comes off as more mature than Camille. Like, th that's it. Yep. <laughs> he comes off as more immature, more volatile. Boys and girls of the same age are often assumed to have different levels of maturity, whether that's true or not. Mm -hmm. Girls are socialized to be more mature faster. So she's sort of like all set. She doesn't need <laughs> she doesn't need anybody's help or intervention. Whereas Camille is clearly still approaching, but has not yet reached their idea of like adult self-regulation. 
except that Quattro thinks he has. In this episode, when Bright tells Quattro that he's not cut out to be Camille's father figure, Quattro is like, ah, he's fine. He doesn't need a father figure. He's, he's grown up enough now. Well, but isn't it interesting that for Bright, grown up enough means being able to handle your relationships, being able to communicate your feelings and regulate your feelings. Like there are all these interpersonal skills involved in that. From Bright's perspective, from Quattro's perspective, it's like, oh, will he follow orders and do what he's told? Can he go fight? Quattro here is like, eh, he follows orders and he's so good at space murder. He's an adult. Yep. No further development required. Exactly. But there is one person on the ship who feels like they need to be a parent figure to Fa, and that's Camille. The one who knows her best is the one who can see that despite all appearances, she still does need somebody looking out for her. Well, she may also be an orphan. We know her parents were captured. We don't know what happened to them. We don't know if they're alive or dead. Nobody does. Yeah. Uh, to go back to the video, uh, going back to sort of the ethos of the show about parenthood and how in some ways Bright and Mirai are held up as ideal parents. Even though Bright is an absent father, Mirai considers his role essential enough that she makes sure her children are hearing about him every day and how important what he's doing is. And it's all very, she makes it all sound very heroic. And it's all things that she could have done, right? Mm -hmm. She would have been perfectly capable of going back into combat, but somebody's got to stay with the kids and keep them out of harm's way to the extent that that's possible. I mean, they could have left them with Quattro. <laughs> the opposite of out of harm's way. <laughs> and so again, we get this notion of like the two influences being very essential, right? And we also see Bright overcome with emotion. He misses his kids so much. He loves them so much. He's crying watching this video message. And it would be hard to imagine another parent in Gundam feeling that way about his kids. Although it also in some ways felt like a bit of an indictment to me because... We see his like hesitance with Camille. He doesn't feel like he knows how to deal with Camille. He's constantly doubting like, oh, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. But we see him exhibit all this emotion. We, we get the sense that we haven't seen him with Hathaway, that he's a good father to Hathaway. He clearly struggled on the white base during the one year war, but he, he learned, right? He had a lot of trouble dealing with the kids early on, but he got better. He he became aware that, oh, I can't snap at them the way I would at soldiers. Like, I need to be better. And so is part of the message here that now that he has biological children, he's incapable of doing the, like, found family mm. thing. That part of the reason he can't be a good father to this random kid is because all of his like fatherhood emotion is overwhelmed by his feelings for his own children. Hmm. That may be so. That may be a bit of a stretch, but I, I did wonder that this person who clearly like has experience and has such fond fatherly feeling is so hesitant and so uh, unable to contend with Camille. The other possibility, I think, is that it comes back to when Bright was saying... I can't deal with Camille. He has so much anger, just like me. That the problem is not so much that Bright is unwilling, but actually Camille is so similar to Bright in personality, so close to Bright in age. I mean, Camille's 17 or 18, Bright's in his mid-20s, but even so, like, it's the difference not is not that much, especially when you compare it to, you know, Bright with his biological kids. 
Like it may actually be that Bright can't be a good father to Camille because he doesn't know how. Ooh, final theory. This is how all men feel about their teenage sons. <laughs> I don't know how to parent this. <laughs> Maybe. I think especially when we think about the rise of teen culture through the post-war period, like teenagers as an economic force and teenagers as the determiners of popular culture really happened in the post-war period in a lot of different parts of the world, uh, Japan included. And we also get these sort of media threads of conflict between teens and their parents as this being one of the most difficult times sort of relationally between a young person and their parent. And so to have Bright just kind of throw up his hands and be like, I don't know how to deal with this teen. You know, even if they had a better relationship to begin with, he might feel that way. And he doesn't have personal experience yet. Hathaway is too young. And he doesn't have personal experience on the other side. When he was Camille's age, he was commanding the white base. He didn't have a parent figure. His parent figure died early in the season. Yep. Captain Paolo! I think this episode also gives us some other glimpses of Bright being kind of immature. Like Bright is still pretty young, all things considered. There's that bit when he's on the bridge and he's like eating the hamburger and talking at the same time and spraying crumbs everywhere. Oh my God, I love it. It's one of those great little details that they throw into the animation that just tell you so much about the character. (laughs) And the poor guy that he's spitting crumbs all over is like, Captain. (laughs) Don't talk with your mouth full. Also hilarious and worth watching that scene again to notice uh, whoever that guy is on the bridge. He and Bright have the exact same hair, just in different colors, like line for line with the three little like wispies in the front. (laughs) It's exactly the same. It is. I had never noticed that until Nina pointed it out. And then later, when they're trying to do the pickup operation, when they're trying to rendezvous with Quattro, Bright gets started doing this like heroic speech like to get everybody ready for the battle. And he gets about a line into it. He gets cut off mid-sentence by one of the people on the bridge being like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> Bright is just like, I guess that works too. One thing I wanted to mention, which is only kind of hinted at in the episode but I do want to draw attention to it, is a fair amount of time has actually passed between the previous episode and this one, albeit with almost no acknowledgement. But we know that enough time has passed for the Bridge of the Alexandria to be repaired, for Gadi to take control, and for Jared and Moar to both be summoned to the Alexandria and to join it. Well, and for, for word to have come from the Jupitress that Sirocco wanted Moar on his ship and for her to choose instead to go to the Alexandria. Ooh, because she's got a crush. I could not help in this episode but to contrast Moar and Lila. Do go on. Because in this episode, I couldn't help but compare Moar and Lala. Lila was tough as nails, expected Jared to get himself together, held him to a very high standard. Both of these women see potential in Jared, but Lila was very caught up in her own thing. She didn't have time to sort of like mold Jared. She expected him to make himself someone admirable. Whereas it feels like Moar's role for episodes now has been to put an arm in front of Jared (laughs) when he starts to lose his temper. Jared, like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're losing it, man. Cool it. Like, that's all she does. And in this episode, it feels like her role has been even further reduced 
Because when she first shows up, I guess when she first shows up, she's grabbing Jared's hand and preventing him from falling to his doom in Jalboro. But later, when she shows up again, she feels like a little bit more of a Lila type, a little bit more like trying to drag Jared forward into maturity as a pilot and as a commander. But she's also stronger and she has a lot more agency in those early episodes when she's being courted by Sirocco and she's suspicious of him and rejecting his advances. And Sirocco is appealing to her ambition, which he assumes she has. The show gives us every reason to believe she does have. Whereas now she's not even really putting an arm out to dissuade Jared from making some rash mistake. Mostly she's clinging to him, clinging to his arm, clinging to his shoulder and saying, like, I want to be with you all the way. When she first comes up to him and is like, haven't you wondered why I'm here? And he kind of plays it off like, I'm not going to get caught up in your circumstances. If I work really hard, I can overcome whatever circumstance. He's still in that, like, I have to earn your love and affection mode. And she's like, no, I'm here because I wanted to be with you. And he's like, what? (laughs) Just as I am. What? What? But why? Oh, and this is all summed up very symbolically and depressingly by her whole role in this battle being to sit inside of a mobile suit that doesn't function on its own and that is just a power source for some other mobile suit's weapon. Gross. On the one hand, at least she wasn't just a battery for Jared's weapon. She was there for Sarah. But yes... Moar's role has really been reduced. This is what love does to women. <laughs> oh. Not necessarily. It could just get you killed. God, has there ever been a bigger death flag than I came here to be with you and then kissing? Maybe I won't die. I trust you to protect me. <sighs> I think for our next merch box, we should get tiny flags made that just say death. <laughs> we can wave them at relevant portions of the episodes. So constantly, just constantly wave (laughs) the little death flag. I agree. Now, the reason I said that I was comparing Moar to Lala has a lot to do with that kissing scene. Jared is really a a Char type. He's the rival. He's conventionally attractive. He's blonde. And he has that kind of in the Titans, but not really for the Titans kind of ambition. And now we have Moar, who is increasingly his subordinate and is dedicating herself to his ambitions rather than her own, trusts him implicitly, smooches him in a hallway. All classic Lala and Char stuff. But for all that, Moar is missing what now really feels like an essential part of the Lala character, which is that combination of weird spiritualism and also trauma that made Lala feel so inhuman. I suppose the other big difference for me is that I could understand why Lala would fixate on Char. He saved her. It's very much like, oh, I was a penniless orphan and you took me in and I'm so grateful and you've been looking after me and you're the only person in the world who cares about me. Whereas with Moar, we don't we don't really get what she sees in Jared. <laughs> Potential, perhaps. But that's uh, and I mean, those kind of feelings don't have to make sense. Uh, but there's there's less of a coercive overtone. And when Moar feels more like a normal, relatable person, these feelings are harder to understand. Or if not harder to understand, they're harder to accept. Lala was so strange that you could believe almost anything from Lala. From Moar, you expect that her feelings would be recognizable. More logical or explainable. 
Not that Jared seems as bad as he did early on. We definitely come to understand him more through the show. But he doesn't have the charisma that Ashar had, the charisma that could make somebody dedicate themselves to you in that way. He's also lost the thread a bit. Like when Lila was around, she asked him at one point, I think, to articulate what exactly is it you want to accomplish? What exactly is your goal? And he wanted to be a leader in the Titans. He says, I want to be in charge, basically. I want to be among those sort of powerful, influential people who get to choose the direction of what's happening. And I'll do whatever it takes to get there. And she's like, okay, if that's what you really want, show me that. But anymore, it doesn't seem that that's what he wants. Or if he does still want that, he has allowed himself to be, be sort of like compromised by his desire for vengeance and his fixation on his rivalry with Camille. And increasingly in this episode, his rivalry with Yazan. Plus, we've seen how self-destructive the rivalry and the desire for vengeance are, that he was willing to die. There was that moment when I think Moar is the one who saves him. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you would have died. And he's like, yeah, but Camille would also be dead. <laughs> and it's difficult for me to understand an attraction to that unless Moar is really into self-destructive men, which she might be. That's a thing. Uh, but she seemed so sensible <laughs> early on. <laughs> And skeptical, right? She seemed a very savvy operator the first couple of episodes that we see her. She doesn't really feel like the same character. Ah, well. We would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about that broken Isaac, the mega launcher, and the scene between Sarah, Camille, Katz, Emma. Really the crux of the battle, when the colors go all wonky and everybody's having a new type connection all at once. Right, Emma and Katz warn Camille with their force of their feelings and minds. Katz warns Sarah. Camille warns Sarah. The decision to use the two Hyzaks with one of them as a battery for the Mega Launcher is really interesting both within the world and gets a neat display of the ingenuity but also the desperation of the Alexandria at this point. They just don't have the resources they did at the beginning of the show. But also... Outside of the world of the show, in the making of this episode, that really does feel like it was done just so that they could put Moar on the battlefield in that subordinate, ineffective role. Because they could have had her in a functional Hyzak guarding Sarah. They could yeah. have said, like, Sarah's going to be very vulnerable with this gun. We need somebody, like, next to her to protect her. Right. And if they had used something other than a Hyzak, they probably wouldn't have needed that second battery Hyzak. Sarah has that line to Jared, like, I'm sorry about this. I just find this to be the easiest mobile suit to operate. She's in a Hyzak because she's able to operate it more easily and presumably... When you're firing a gun that big at a range that extreme, you want the mobile suit that you can operate the most effectively. But the Hyzak, and this is going back into the lore again, but the Hyzak has a notoriously weak reactor. Mm. So if Sarah were in something with a more powerful reactor, a Marasai, a Gabflay, a whatever, probably they wouldn't have needed Moar to be there. Oh, man. Speaking of these scenes, though, and because it came up earlier, uh, doesn't the relationship between Jared and Sarah seem much more positive than it started out? Yes, it does. I wonder how much Jared's new role as commanding officer is affecting his personality, his drives, his motivations, because he does seem less obsessed with revenge. Not that he's not still obsessed with it, but he does seem more stable now. And maybe that's just when you compare him to Yazan. And kind and encouraging. 
you know, he goes straight to Sarah when Yazan is causing havoc on the ship. Um, you know, when she apologizes for using the Isaac, he's like, no, whatever works, like do what you got to do. It just feels so nice. <laughs> <laughs> Very um, different from before. And the Isaacs also give us uh, an opportunity to look at how ill-suited Yazan is to the type of war that they're fighting. <laughs> well, it feels like Yazan is maybe the product of a different time. He feels like somebody who wants to be a samurai or a knight, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to go out on the battlefield and duel people. Right. And I refuse to use these like terrible, obsolete weapons and I'm going to throw them out into space. I don't even want them on the same ship. They disgust me to look at them. It's a very dramatic gesture. It's also really, really wasteful, right? Like they might need those parts. They might need the reactors. They might need them to act as batteries for other weapons. There's so many uses for those mobile suits, especially given that they do not have all the mobile suits that they would like to have. It's one thing to be the dramatic warrior who's like, I refuse to fight alongside these terrible weapons. But it just shows us again, like Yazan is not actually that good a tactician <laughs> or that good at thinking beyond the fight itself. But... Is it possible that what Yazan is actually doing here is using his reputation as kind of insane to sabotage Jared so that it will be easier for Yazan to rise over him? Because when Yazan launches with his team at the beginning of the battle, he says, if I went by the book, I would be overtaken by my own allies. Mm -hmm. The rivalry here between Yazan and Jared is distinct, and Yazan is not like threatening to throw off any old mobile suit. Yazan is throwing out the mobile suits that are essential for Jared's plan. And insulting Jared's subordinate when he describes uh, Sarah as a half-finished battle doll. Which has to be a reference to her cyber new typeness mm -hmm. and her youth. Right. He also takes this as an opportunity to insult Jared at every turn, culminating with a glove slap <laughs> as he coasts by which they don't talk about. All right, that means we're dueling. But everybody understands that to be a dueling gesture. Well, Jared doesn't respond to it as though it were. But he does respond to it as if he's been insulted. Indeed. But I wonder if everybody else, like it's clear that Yazan intends that action very deliberately. But I do wonder if anybody else really understands what it means. This might be another sign of Yazan's kind of throwback nature. Mm, yeah. Did you notice during that scene when Yazan calls Jared that loser who should be dead? What he says in Japanese is Shinizokunai. Which is the same thing that was said about that battleship. The Guazin in the previous episode. Outlived its usefulness. It has right. failed to die. Loser who should be dead is a fabulous translation of that. It really is. I know we rag on the Zeta translation from time to time, but that one is fantastic. If Yazan is saying that same line twice in as many episodes, it's clearly a pretty important part of his personality, his disdain for older things. Well, or his, his disdain for, for outliving your usefulness. Yazan is the kind who wants to go out in a blaze of glory, who wants to live fast, die young, leave a handsome corpse. He almost looks at achieving old age as failure because it means you have not died in glorious battle. And he sees it as perfectly appropriate and in fact, like the correct and natural order of the universe for the young to kill the old. When did Hayato become so credulous? That's what I want to know. You act as though Hayato was not 
the Hayatoist in First Gundam. Right, but you expect him to grow out of it. He's a grown up with responsibilities now. In the logic of Gundam, that just makes him worse. Quattro found some orphans somewhere. We are not given any indication where. We are not even told their names. They don't say a word. They just like run by laughing. And playing and being rambunctious. Uh, And Hayato is like, Quattro, you take too much on yourself. You sacrifice too much of yourself for other people. And Quattro's like, oh, but now that I don't have Blex to look after, I just like I need someone to care for. <laughs> Do any of us believe that for even a second? The fact that Hayato does makes me really question his leadership. <laughs> I love the bit here where Hayato is like, Quattro, I know this is going to be really difficult for you, but do you think maybe you could see your way to lying to all of your friends and companions about the commanding officer who died under your watch? Because you were not there guarding him when you were supposed to be. And I imagine Quattro just looks at Hayato through his sunglasses and he thinks about Garma and Kaecilia and everybody else. And then he says, yeah, I think I can do that. And why does everybody want Quattro to be in charge? Not everybody, just Hayato. And Blex. Blex had lost a lot of blood. <laughs> but anyway, if I had to posit a reason why Quattro picked up some random orphans, it is because Quattro wants to recreate the white base, more or less. And because he doesn't really understand the underlying emotional elements of that, he's like, oh, so it's wartime. I just need some orphans who I guess I'll kind of look after and they'll help out however they can. They're little kids, so they can't pilot for another like four years. But then, you know, <laughs> uh, they'll, they'll, they'll like grow up in space and around fighting and that will make them really powerful new types. Right. And they'll like love me unconditionally because I took them in. I don't know. I agree with you completely. He's trying to turn the Argama into a new white base. He got himself an Amuro analog. He got the original Bright. Now he's got a couple of orphans. He doesn't know what it was about the white base that made it the white base, but he knows all of these different elements and he's just trying to recreate the vibe. Step one, war orphans. Step two, question mark. Step three, really powerful new types. Exactly. <laughs> He doesn't know why having a couple of rambunctious orphans running around the halls is important, but he knows that it was. The white base couldn't have been the white base without Kika, Cats, and Let's. The other moment that I found very revealing, and it almost feels like a throwaway line, it's very quick, and then the story moves on, but after Hayato has been urging Quattro to take command of things, now that Blex is gone, Quattro thinks to himself, Wow, Ayug, Karaba, and Axis. That's a lot to have on my shoulders. We've only heard mention of Axis once before, and we knew that Quattro was keeping an eye on them. We knew he was having someone gather intelligence about them and their movements for him. We did not know that he had any connection or involvement, but it seems that we have confirmation of that now. He feels some kind of responsibility. Right. But as to what that means, well, we'll just have to wait. In this week's research, we have Yasan's Gauntlet and Nagano Mamoru. Part 1. As Yasan floats away from Jared following a heated but inconclusive confrontation between the two men, he contrives to slap Jared across the face with his glove. This is a deliberate action for Yasan, 
one requiring forethought and preparation. We see him carefully peeling the outer layer off his normal suit's glove well before he actually strikes Jared. And while he makes it look plausibly like an accident, there is no doubt that the insulting blow was intentional and carefully calculated. In this we see that perhaps there is more intention behind Yazan's actions than his persona seems to suggest. That perhaps he is not just a being of unrestrained impulse, but one who disguises his real goals behind a mask of pure id. The gesture, a slap across the face with an empty glove, is tremendously significant. Jared's reaction suggests that he may not be fully aware of its implications, but Yazan must be. Else why would he go to the trouble when he could just as easily have struck or insulted Jared in some other kind of way? Stereotypically, in our modern imagination, slapping someone across the face with your glove is the way to challenge them to a duel. It's so well understood and so inherently silly that it's become a staple in comedies and comic relief bits. It's in Looney Tunes, The Simpsons, Indiana Jones, Beauty and the Beast, Cyrano de Bergerac, and on and on and on and on. It goes something like this. Sir, you have impugned my honor. You are a scoundrel and a liar, and I demand satisfaction on the field of honor. Very well. I accept your challenge. It shall be pistols at dawn. But while there are some kernels of truth buried in there, a lot of it, most of it is wrong. And if we look at this scene without knowing a bit more about dueling rules and European honor culture, we'll be just like Jared, missing the nuance of Yazan's gesture. And I know that the phrase, nuance of Yazan's gesture, sounds weird, but here we are. So let's talk dueling, and along the way, we're going to learn a few things about glove slapping, too. In English, we talk about all kinds of things using the language of duel and dueling. In law and literature, we talk about dueling interpretations of the same text. In sports, we talk about duels between pitcher and batter, goalkeeper and striker, between two quarterbacks, between two coaches, or even between two standout stars who may never directly play each other but are both chasing the same trophy, and so on. We've even got dueling banjos. Anytime you have a hotly contested battle between two people, groups, or ideas that are perceived to have relatively equal capabilities, fighting to decide which is superior, especially when there's no real prize or material reward to be had, that's what we call a duel. But we talk about all of these things in these terms because, in European and European-influenced culture, the true duel casts a long shadow. And when I say the true duel, what I mean is... No. <laughs> a private, armed engagement between two elite individuals fought over a dispute of honor between them and governed by explicit rules established both within their community at large and by prior negotiation between the two duelists. The word duel comes from the medieval Latin duellum, a combination of the words duo for two and bellum for war. A duellum then was a war for two. Just as the word evolved out of two predecessors, the duel itself was the child of two distinct traditions. Personal combat between champions on the battlefield, which is probably as old as humanity itself, and the judicial duel, more commonly known as trial by combat, in which a legal matter could be decided not by a judge, but by a battle between fighters representing the respective legal positions. 
Records for the judicial duel in the European tradition go back at least as far as the 500s CE, and the law code Lex Burgundionum, issued by Burgundian king Gundabad. The theory behind the judicial duel was that if the accuser, the accused, and witnesses for each all swore solemn oaths, and those oaths conflicted with each other, and all involved refused to recant their oaths, then the only way to determine the objective truth was to have a representative from each side fight. God would ensure that the honest man prevailed. Under the Lex Burgundionum, the actual fighting could be handled by the accuser and accused themselves, but anyone who volunteered themselves as a witness for one side could fight instead. So, just imagine a Burgundian court case in the 6th century as two litigants showing up to court with the biggest, toughest, most heavily armed witnesses they can find. Judicial duels cropped up all throughout Europe in the ensuing centuries. Efforts to abolish the judicial duel altogether were stymied by its long tradition. You don't need me to tell you that lawyers love a good precedent, even if it's not like a good precedent. <laughs> as well as by the romantic appeal of the practice. One 14th century judicial duel in France fought over an alleged adultery between a knight's wife and his squire was watched by the entire royal court and thousands of spectators. Initially, the judicial duel was available for all kinds of disputes, but as it was continually criticized for being both barbaric and superstitious, successive waves of legal reform restricted its application to only the most serious crimes, murder, treason, and so on. Presumably, if the punishment for your crime was going to be death anyway, then it wasn't too barbaric to let you risk death in hopes of proving your innocence. Ultimately, though, it was either abolished outright or so thoroughly constrained and disfavored as to be effectively abolished. But as the judicial duel lost favor, it was at first supplemented and then supplanted by the private duel. And this is now what we might call the true duel. These were unsanctioned by law and were fought not over matters of public concern, crimes and the like, but over matters of private honor. The practice first appeared in Italy during the 1500s, where young urban aristocrats sought to establish their status through exaggerated displays of their honor. Initially, this resulted in a phrase, big, unplanned, no-rules fights that broke out whenever rival aristocratic gangs encountered each other. If you've ever read or watched Romeo and Juliet, this is what happens in the first scene of the play, when swaggering bravos associated with the Capulet and Montague families start fighting with swords in the streets of Verona over an insulting gesture. If an insult could not be immediately redressed via an affray, the aggrieved party might instead bide their time, gather their allies, and then launch a deadly ambush at some later hour. Naturally, if you're trying to run a city, Affrays and ambushes are a problem. The earliest sets of rules governing the behavior of gentlemen, a word which here, ironically, means men willing to kill or die for the sake of their reputations, were meant to govern disputes of honor and prevent the chaotic street violence of the era. The Code Duello, which was not a single unified body of rules governing duels, but rather a term used for the dozens or perhaps hundreds of different rules in force in different places and at different times, prescribed how a nobleman should behave, what behaviors were considered offensive, and how redress might be obtained. It governed the methods for apology, for challenge, for the negotiations and the conduct of the duel. In short, 
It defined the abstract notion of honor in concrete terms, and it established how it could be lost and how regained. Winning the duel, killing your enemy, was no longer the point. Honor could be redeemed by performing the rituals of the duel correctly, even if the duel was eventually avoided through one of the Code Duello's many loopholes. If the duel happened, it was enough to demonstrate your willingness to die for the sake of your honor. The actual outcome was irrelevant. Wasn't it true that in many times and places, you were really trying not to kill the other person? You were trying to wound or... One of the codes duello that I looked at actually banned that practice, which is how we know that it was happening. Okay. Right. It's like, well, I don't want to kill you, but you did insult me and I would like to cut you up a bit. That was more the case once pistols entered the equation. When it was still dueling with swords, that was deadly business. But early pistols were so inaccurate that (laughs) it was very likely that you could stand, you know, 20 20 paces paces apart and each fire off three shots and never hit the other man, even though you were aiming at him. I'm sure this is a coincidence, but when pistols became commonplace, dueling became much more popular. Dueling spread from Italy throughout the rest of Europe and to America, growing and evolving to suit the particular honor culture in each place. I thought this was particularly interesting. In places where nascent democracy coexisted with a titled or informal aristocracy, like Britain or the United States, especially the South, rival politicians would fight non-lethal duels in the aftermath of a hotly contested election, which allowed both men to redeem their honor following all of that mudslinging and allowing the loser of the election to cleanse themselves of the shame of defeat. In what would eventually become Germany, From the 16th century on, dueling was taken up with vigor by university students who, by custom, wore swords as part of their everyday attire. Dueling was a way to develop and to prove all the manly virtues, and as the special province of the university student, it served to set them apart from the ordinary population, in the same way that the honor duel had set the Italian aristocrats apart. Dueling became an integral part of the student fraternities, and the duel evolved over time to be less lethal with cutting emphasized over thrusting. Dueling scars, usually on the forehead, chin, or cheeks, became much-admired badges of honor. The Nazis actually banned the practice in order to weaken the fraternities in the 1930s, but the practice returned after World War II, and in fact it endures in secrecy today. Of all the various codes duello, one of the most influential was the Irish Code created in 1777 by delegates gathered from five different counties. The code contained 25 articles applicable throughout Ireland, and two additional rules only valid in Galway. It's a complicated schema that is more concerned with the rules governing insult and apology, the required cooling off time between a challenge and a duel, the exchange of letters, the negotiation between the seconds in order to reach a mutually agreeable resolution, and all the various ways by which a lethal duel might be avoided. Indeed, much of the code is given to defining how much of a display of dueling is necessary before a dispute may be set to rest. Offenses are graded by severity, as are apologies, and an offense given to a woman under your care and protection counted as an offense against you one step more severe than had it been given to you directly. There were three tiers of apology, begging pardon being the most powerful apology, and one which was sufficient to prevent duels in all but the most severe cases. After that was an apology, which was fine in minor cases, but for more severe insults could only be made after some amount of shooting, or stabbing, in the actual duel. 
If you were unwilling to beg pardon or apologize, and if you survived multiple rounds of dueling, you could get away with the weakest form of apology, an explanation for your behavior. Fighting until one or the other was disabled or killed was appropriate only in the most egregious cases. I should note here that while these codes are clearly written with masculine honor in mind, the special attention to the honor of women under the charge of men or of one or the other party making that plain enough, women absolutely did engage in duels, both with men and with each other, over all the same kinds of provocations. It was disfavored, of course, but these were women in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and so on centuries. They couldn't get out of bed without being disfavored. I will include links to anecdotes about some of the more famous female duelists in the show notes, from a young French aristocrat who burned down a convent before dueling, wounding, and seducing a count. <laughs> she seduced him after she wounded him? Yes. Hmm, that's one way to solve the argument. <laughs> and to the story of two Russian matrons who killed each other with swords in 1829, and their daughters who had another go at it six years later. The Code Duello expressly forbade what it called children's play, which is firing with intent to miss by discharging the weapon either into the ground or into the air. To quote the Code, the challenger ought not to have challenged without receiving offense, and the challenged ought, if he gave offense, to have made an apology before he came on the ground. So, what counts as an offense? Well, the Code is clearly written with the assumption that its readers already know what is offensive. And I think we can imagine most of them to be insults, social snubs, rumor-mongering, and such like. Anything that impugns the other person's reputation. The only example of a minor offense actually listed in the code is calling another gentleman impertinent. In an equivalent code from Germany, the minor offenses were impoliteness and inconsiderate behavior. More serious offenses were curses and insults like imbecile, the Irish Code does lay out the three most severe offenses. They are, in order of increasing severity, to call someone a liar, to impute that someone cheats at games, and most severe of all, to strike another gentleman. As the Code puts it, as a blow is strictly prohibited under any circumstances amongst gentlemen, no verbal apology can be received for such an insult. The code also sets out the rules of the seconds, those go-betweens who negotiate the terms of the duel or, ideally, the terms of the apology. There's a quote, uh, it's probably apocryphal, but it does get repeated a lot. It was attributed to some unnamed famous fencing master by John Millingen in his mammoth 1841 two-volume treatise, The History of Dueling, including narratives of the most remarkable encounters that have taken place from the earliest period to the present time. And the quote is, it is not the sword or the pistol that kills, but the seconds. It was up to the seconds to prevent the duel from taking place, or if it must occur, then to ensure that it occurred under conditions that made death unlikely. Now, as I've talked about the rules for duels, I've emphasized all the ways that the Code's duello were designed to resolve disputes without ever requiring the duel to take place. But all of that assumes that the participants did not want to have a go at killing each other. And sometimes, they really, really did. And if you could manipulate the rules to avoid a fight, you had better believe you could manipulate them to force a fight. Maybe you are a skilled fighter, and your social rival doesn't know which end of his sword is the pointy one. 
Maybe you have been so thoroughly degraded in the eyes of society that only a huge show of honor and courage has any hope of redeeming you. Maybe you just really, really hate him. You could simply challenge your rival to a duel, of course, but challenging someone without proper grounds is itself incredibly dishonorable. And of course, he could just apologize. And then where does that leave you? It leaves you not on the dueling ground. It is much better if you can induce your rival to challenge you. So here's how you do that. You hit him. It doesn't need to be hard. You don't need to make a scene. You just need to hit him. Because remember, a blow between gentlemen is strictly prohibited in every circumstance. No verbal apology is ever sufficient. Hit him, and he has to challenge you. And not challenging someone when you have been insulted is as dishonorable as challenging someone when you haven't been insulted. The blow itself was symbolic, and so highly symbolic gestures were employed for it. The slap across the face was a good choice, being not very serious, but very insulting. Or to make the gesture even more symbolic, you might use an empty glove, which gave only the symbolic effect of a blow. I've seen various descriptions of how this was actually done, both in history and in literature from the era, and we can be certain that at least some people were getting slapped in the face with gloves, just as we all imagine. But other sources suggest that the proper way to do it, at least in some places and at some times, was to tap your rival in the chest with your glove and then throw it down on the ground. In some traditions, no actual blow was required. You could simply announce, consider yourself to have been slapped, and that was sufficient. <laughs> in any event, these were matters of fashion and preference. They were not strict rules of etiquette. As a side note, I found one anecdote about a particularly dueling mad rascal who once won a duel by cudgeling his opponent unconscious with the pommel of his dagger which would not be quite so very impressive except that this duelist, Lagarde, was at that moment mounted by his opponent and had been stabbed some dozen times in the chest and belly. Lagarde retired from the dueling scene, but even into his... He lived? Yes, so did his opponent. <laughs> oh my god. His opponent was later killed in an ambuscade. Lagarde retired from the dueling scene, but even into his old age, he terrorized all of his neighbors by regularly sending them letters announcing that he had burned down their houses and inflicted various horrors on their families, signing these, Your Mortal Enemy Lagarde. I should emphasize he didn't actually do those things, but it was sufficient to say that he had. But why did the glove and face pairing become so fashionable? Why did it endure in art and literature in a way that the realities of dueling rarely did? And why is it the one we remember best today? And why am I only just now getting to the purported topic of this piece after 2,700 words? Well, the glove was already an integral part of the honor contest tradition in Europe, and part of the bedrock of the mythology of the European noble. There was a trope in literature about medieval knights where one character would get so mad that he flings his armored gauntlet at the face of the other, striking it, making a small cut, and giving occasion for a serious quarrel. In translation, an iron gauntlet on his hand had he, and in a rage so fierce he could not speak, he flung it, striking his proud nephew's cheek. But when the count that he was wounded saw, by the stiff gauntlet that the emperor threw, in furious anger he began to draw, great Durlindana and toward him flew, and had in spite of reverence and awe, severed his head, 
But that between the two rushed in Duke Namus and the Danish lord, and held the hand that grasped the vengeful sword. Whether this was a real practice or not, and despite all of my searching I couldn't find any evidence that it was, such face-targeted gauntlet flinging was such a common trope in the knightly romances that it developed into a practice of throwing your gauntlet on the ground as a kind of general challenge. Anyone who disputes what I am claiming can come forward and take up my gauntlet. Then it will be just as if I had thrown my gauntlet right in their face. This practice is described in the 1586 treatise on nobility in England, The Blazon of Gentry, and it appears in Shakespeare's Richard II, written around 1595. Thus, the English idioms throw down the gauntlet and take up the gauntlet, and probably just throw down, that endure today. But you might have noticed that all of these sources for gauntlet throwing come from the 16th century. I wasn't able to find any sources for gauntlet throwing as an integral part of honor challenges, trials by combat, or anything like that from before the 16th century. If any of our listeners are medievalists who can point me towards such a thing, I would love to see it. But at this point, I'm fairly certain that this whole gauntlet face challenge thing was an invention of the Italian Renaissance poets that was then adopted by aristocrats first in Italy and then throughout Europe, looking for a definition of what it meant to be a noble in their time, and finding it in literature about a prior time. In place of gauntlets, they used gloves, and instead of throwing them, they slapped each other. As for Jared and Yazan, throughout the one scene they share at the beginning of this episode, Yazan insults Jared in just about every way you can imagine. He escalates, first insulting Jared personally, calling him a loser who should be dead. Then he insults Sarah, calling her an incomplete battle doll, and she probably qualifies as a woman under Jared's care and protection for purposes of the Code Duello. And remember that such an insult is considered more severe than an insult directed to Jared. And then finally, he slaps Jared, the ultimate and most unforgivable offense. But Jared refuses the provocation. He doesn't challenge Yazan. And what does that mean? Well, here's the thing. A duel can only take place between two people of equal status. A blow is unpardonable between two people of equal status. A person of superior status is allowed to strike an inferior. For example, Tsar Peter the Great was notorious for caning whoever in his court displeased him. And so to allow a blow, as Jared does, is effectively to accept subordinate status. Jared might not know that, but oh, I bet you that Yazan does. After recording, I realized that I used two Japanese terms without defining them. So, going into this research piece, I used the word otaku. Otaku generally just means geek or nerd, but more specifically, it's anyone who has an interest that they are really passionate about and know a lot about. The second word I use is dojinshi. Dojinshi are self-published fan comics and magazines, although sometimes they are created by professional manga creators for side projects or to release things that they can't get published through a big publisher. One artist and mecha designer who has come to be closely associated with Gundam and famous for his work on the franchise is Mamoru Nagano. That's the American order. The Japanese order would be Nagano Mamoru, 
Uh, typically, people just call him Nagano. Now, Tom informs me that we will have other opportunities to talk about Nagano and his work as we make our way through Gundam. But Zeta was Nagano's first Gundam series, so let's take a moment to talk about his background, his early career, and his work on Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam. Nagano was born on the 21st of January 1960, making him just 25 years old at the time of Zeta's release. He joined Sunrise in 1983, working on numerous real robot shows as a mecha, character, and weapons designer, and sometimes even as a production manager. It sounds as if he was involved in as many as half a dozen projects at a time. He came to Tomino's attention when he entered a design competition for a new series, and was chosen to be lead designer on Tomino's 1984 series, Heavy Metal L-Game. His work on L-Game, in both character and mecha design, brought him quite a bit of fame and attention, although he was just 24 years old and had only been working at Sunrise for four months. He is known for being strongly committed to the real aspect of real robot, incorporating design elements like rivets and paneling, weapons based off of real weapons, things that make Mecha look more like real built machines. He was an enthusiast for military weaponry and machinery and used this deep and detailed knowledge to inflect his designs with that realism. He is also credited with the design innovation of Mecha that consists of looser armor plates over an internal skeleton, what is now called a mobile frame. In Zeta, he is specifically credited with designing the Rick Diaz and the Hyakushiki, and on top of managing mobile suit design, he designed the Argama and the normal suits. Aside from his interest in military engineering and technology, Nagano is very interested in fashion design, and is known to be fastidious, some might even say picky, about the clothing in his character designs. As a fan of First Gundam, Nagano's favorite suits were Xeon ones, especially the Galgoog, the Zaku, and the Zucrello. One of these things just doesn't belong. One of these things is not like the others. Yeah, for someone who is really into the real aspect, it's funny that he likes the Zucrello, but what can you do? In the show notes, we'll include a link to a documentary about the release of the First Gundam compilation movies. Nagano appears in the footage dressed in Shar cosplay, alongside his friend, voice actress Maria Kawamura, cosplaying as Lala. He and Kawamura would later marry and are still together. One of his favorite cosplays is Sailor Venus from the Sailor Moon series, and there's a great photo, which we will also link to, of him as Sailor Venus and Kunihiku Ikuhara, creator of numerous series, including Revolutionary Girl Utna and, most recently, Sarazanmai, as Sailor Mars. Some of his art books even contain illustrations of him in that costume. In a 1987 profile, he was asked some questions about his physical details and gave his weight as 46 kilos and his waist size as only 60 centimeters, making him a very slight, slender man. Uh, and he mentioned in the same interview that he can wear women's clothes no problem. Nagano and Ikuhara co-wrote and Nagano illustrated a two-volume novel called Shell Bullet, which I am now desperate to read. While working in design for animation, Nagano was simultaneously creating manga. In 1986, he released Five Star Stories, which is still running today, and at some point he founded a company, Toys Press Inc., to publish most of his manga. Although his wife Maria Kawamura did work on some of the same projects, they actually met in college and had been friends and dated for over a decade before they married. I'm not certain that I've understood the Japanese Wikipedia page correctly, 
but it seems as though Tomino and his wife acted as go-between slash matchmaker for Nagano and Kawamura, either in encouraging them to finally get married after being friends for such a long time, uh, or maybe just in a ceremonial capacity. They seem to have a happy marriage, although in one interview, uh, Nagano talks about something Kawamura said to him during a fight, which I will quote here in Japanese and then translate because it made me laugh. In the midst of this argument about what he didn't say, she says to him, To which he replied, Which, to the best of my translation ability, means something like, if you couldn't draw robots, you'd just be another loser guy. And his response is something like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh, it is my solemn duty at this point to relate to you a long-standing rumor from the Gundam fan community, at least on the English side. I actually don't know if this is something that Japanese fans talk about, but there is a rumor about the production of Zeta Gundam that a lot of decisions towards the latter half of the show were motivated less by the artistic plan for the show and more by spite and internal disagreements and the uh, settling of some long-standing grudges within the production staff. I don't really think that's true. But one of the more salacious rumors about this is that supposedly Tomino fell in love with one of the voice actors. And that that voice actor did not reciprocate, but instead was in love with one of the mecha designers. And that Tomino was so vindictive and vengeful that he essentially wrote that voice actor out of Gundam and ensured that that mecha designer never worked for Sunrise or Bandai again. And in these rumors, the voice actor is Maria Kawamura, who is the voice actor for Belt Horchka, and the mecha designer is Nagano Mamoru. There were uh, some hints of a souring of the relationship between Nagano and Sunrise. However, I tried not to read ahead too far, since, as we said, we'll probably revisit Nagano when we get to later series. So what I know is he was involved in at least one more Gundam thing, and uh, his relationship with Sunrise went bad at some point. But I will leave the rest of that knowledge for later. And I will simply point out that that story about Tomino, Maria Kawamura, and Nagano sounds much less plausible when you remember that at this point Tomino has been married for like a decade and has two kids, and Nagano and Kawamura had known each other for years and had already been dating. Yeah. And that perhaps Tomino and his wife acted as go-betweens to get Nagano and Kawamura married, finally. It doesn't hold water. From his interviews, you can tell that Nagano is an otaku, in the nicest sense of that word. When he's interested in something, military vehicles, fashion, music, he learns as much as he can about it. He talks about listening to the Beatles when he was in high school, but being a fan in a different way than the kids around him. He didn't just listen. He knew which bandmates did which parts of which songs, when, who wrote what. When, like all the little details of production and performance were things that he wanted to know about. I remember a story about him early on in his days at Sunrise, I think working with Yasuhiko on one of Yas's projects. And Nagano was recommended to Yas as somebody who actually knows how all of this stuff works. Like if you want somebody to design a tank who knows how tanks work, you have to go to Nagano. 
Yeah, he describes working with Yaz on a project for, to design a machine that is like a tank. And he was designing it from the inside out and Yaz from the outside in. It was very important to Yaz that it makes sense the way that the machine moved and worked. He wanted to know like, okay, but how do all the parts work together? How does it function? How does it move? And Nagano could tell him that and do the design drawings for that. Because he had been this super fan of military technology and in particular tanks and had this encyclopedic knowledge. In the English language interview he did for Forbes, Nagano said, with tanks, I have a specific interest and the amount I knew was not normal. It was hardcore. <laughs> in addition to the hobbies I've already mentioned, he also likes Plamel, plastic model kits. And although he won a Tamiya-sponsored contest when he was 18, Tamiya is a company that makes model building tools and paints, uh, he doesn't consider his work comparable to very skilled hobbyists or pros. One piece of Nagano's story that blows my mind, though it probably shouldn't, at one time, he wanted to be a musician, and that's what he actually went to university to study. He's originally from the Kyoto area, but grew up out in the country. And when he moved to Tokyo for university, he would constantly send bits of cultural information, stuff about the hottest new music and the latest trends and so on, to his friends back home. He was very interested in fanzines and doujinshi, and was doing a lot of drawing on his own. At that time, he got involved with a group of Gundam fans in Kyoto who were organizing a screening of the movies, and one of the things they were doing to promote the event was to have cosplayers there. But not just to have cosplayers there, but to have cosplayers perform little scenes. This was such a new and unusual thing that they were covered in manga magazines and anime magazines, and were even invited by the production company to appear at official events. Nagano credits the fan communities he was a part of with many of his friendships with now influential members of the anime community and with his eventual job at Sunrise. He actually would have gotten to meet Tomino before he ever got the job at Sunrise because Tomino would have been at some of the events where Nagano was cosplaying to promote the event. To close, a couple of miscellaneous things that struck me about Nagano. He didn't seem to consider his interests anything special. He describes it as being interested in what was popular, what other young people were interested in. It was the depth of his interest, the level of investment in learning all of this detailed information about the interest that was unique. He described his period of working on multiple shows at the same time, bouncing between projects as a lot of fun. This was in those first couple of months that he was working at Sunrise and he was sort of on a probation period. And although they assigned him to a particular studio within Sunrise, they would bring him anything and he just kind of had to do it. They would just bring like, oh, we need a design for this show. Oh, we need a design for that show. Oh, we need this. We need that. We need you to work with so-and-so. And it sounds like it did create some conflict between those studios because they all have things that they want done right now. And he's trying to balance all of these competing interests. But he seems to have enjoyed it. And apparently one of the things that endeared him to his coworkers is that even in the very stressful and chaotic anime production environment, he was always very courteous and polite to everyone. He mentions even just being sure to say good morning and good evening to everyone and excuse me and, you know, like standard polite language that often gets left by the wayside when people are stressed and in a crunch. Uh, he was very conscientious about it and people liked that. With that, I leave you until our next Nagano-involved series, which I believe is Double Zeta. Tom won't even tell me that, but... No spoilers. 
We go on break for a few weeks and you think all the rules are gone. Next time on episode 2.29, A Show of Mercy, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 28 and Plant Mom, Casual Outfits, Surrounded by Assholes, Toy Mobile Suits, Gender is Irrelevant, Five Men Explained to One Woman, Sneaky Sneaky, Blind Spots, Soroko Leaves a Mark, Rekoa straight up kills a guy. And everyone is wrong. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, This episode shouldn't be called Rendezvous with Char? Char isn't even in it! On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. I think it's probably better to make an episode where I sound like because I'm getting over a cold than to make no episode at all. I, I agree. This will display your your devotion, your dedication to the podcast. <laughs> She's dying. But I will share with you my takes. Now that we're sad. <laughs> now that we're appropriately sad to talk about Gundam. Ooh, you need oh. the script for this. Also, it's not last week. Unfortunately, I wrote this high-energy sports commentating bit back when we were both feeling much healthier. <laughs> we're just going to have to make an effort. Yep, we're going to have to dig deep within ourselves and find the spirit of the American Ninja Warriors commentary team. Oh my god. They are frequently pretty bad, so... But they're so energetic. I said Mizuna, didn't I? Usually not three slaps. And put a little sting in there. God, afraid is such a great word. <laughs> yeah, I, I was really excited that I was able to work it into this into this research. Fraka. What are some other obscure words for fights? Ambuscade. What? Dueling became an integral part. Dueling became an inter. 
You got this. My college experience did not include dueling. Unless you can't fight your roommate. But it's clear he was not a big fan of the homeowners association. I had to have Tom remind me of the name of the G-Defensor because in my episode notes, it's the wingling thing. Yay, there's being done here. Hello, everyone. Our voices sound different, not because we spent the past two weeks in super secret voice training, but because air travel is terrible and we both got sick. Hello. So now you get to hear our sexy phlegm. That is probably <laughs> the only Friends <laughs> reference you will ever hear me make. Yeah, we didn't, um, not really into Friends. I don't remember much of the show Friends, but for whatever reason, there are little bits that stuck in my mind, and one of them is the episode. Off center. Yeah, bring it up a little bit. It's pointing more at your mouth. Is that good? I think so. The episode where Phoebe gets a cold and really likes what it does for her singing voice. (laughs) (laughs) And then when it goes away, she's disappointed. She's like, oh no, my sexy phlegm. So enjoy it while you can, folks. Enjoy our sexy phlegm. Are you allowed to say that word on our all ages podcast? Sexy? Phlegm. (laughs) It is pretty disgusting, isn't it? (laughs) Stronger and more... I want to say demanding. Demanding, but also um, when you are... This is the um, the thing you... Agency! We'll wave it near the camera so you'll just hear little like rippling flag noises. Camera? (laughs) Microphone. (laughs) 